Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at chapter 13, verses 7 through 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 17. Thank you, James. We appreciate your leadership. James is leaving. See you later. <laughs> I take that back. Thank you to our praise team and our instruments. You guys do a wonderful job every week. Back in the days when people wrote letters to one another, some of you remember those days, one would often conclude their letter with a flurry of last-minute instructions and directions. It wasn't like it is now where, you know, Rachel and I may text each other a dozen times a day, right? When you get off work today, can you pick up a gallon of milk? Can you take this kid to practice, et cetera, et cetera? People didn't have that technology back then. There was no texting. There was no email. At some point, we got telephones in the house, but you get charged an arm and a leg for a long-distance call, so that was reserved for special occasions only. The point is, when you wrote a letter, you needed to be sure that you included everything that needed to be said, because if you forgot something, the only viable option was to write and mail a whole other letter. So a lot of times you'd end your letter with miscellaneous thoughts. Don't forget to write. So-and-so says hi. Remember to do this or that. Can you bring this item with you the next time I see you? And all of those kinds of things. As we draw near to the end of the letter to the Hebrews, we see a similar dynamic taking place. For instance, last week we looked at five instructions for a God-pleasing life. These were very practical, applicable behaviors that the author told the Hebrews that they needed to be practicing. I would argue there really wasn't a common theme running through those instructions that we looked at last Sunday. They, they seemed kind of disconnected, but they're nonetheless important for the author to mention before he closed his letter. Today we have a similar passage in that once again the author is laying out some concluding directions for the Hebrews to follow. And this time they're of a more spiritual nature. But again, there's not necessarily a common theme that unites them. It's just the author of Hebrews saying, hey, before I sign off of here, here's some important things you guys need to remember. Boom, 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 boom. So let's lean in today and let's hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to us through the author of Hebrews as we near the end of this letter. The title of today's sermon is Concluding Spiritual Directions. For you note-takers, we will identify four such directions as we make our way through the text this morning. The first direction we'll look at comes in two parts, really serving as bookends for this passage. We find this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, and then we will skip down and read verse 17. So let's read those. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. And then all the way down to verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. All right, here's spiritual direction number one. Honor, emulate, and obey your pastors. Now, I hear some giggling already. Let me say right off the bat, this is a very awkward passage for me to preach. 
because the very nature of it sounds quite self-serving. But I trust that you all by now hopefully know my heart. And this is God's word, and somebody has to preach it, right? And that's what you've entrusted me to do, so I will do that. Let's start at the very beginning. The word remember in verse 7, in this context, carries with it the idea of honor. In multiple places in the New Testament, the Bible instructs the church to honor its pastors or overseers, those who rule over the church, those who speak and teach the word of God. 1 Timothy 5 echoes this, saying, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. To sit under the regular teaching and preaching of the word of God by God-called pastors is absolutely vital to our spiritual health. I would argue that the teaching of the word is the single most important function of the local church. Thus, those men who labor week in and week out to feed their people the word of God should be remembered or honored by those same people. I want to be clear, this does not mean that we worship pastors, nor do we make an idol of them. We live in a time of celebrity pastors, which I think most of us would agree has proven very harmful to the church. Nor am I suggesting that honoring our pastors means that they are above question or above correction. I'm simply stating that godly churches, healthy churches, honor their pastors by showing proper respect for the office, by remembering and honoring the men who fill the office, and by following their leadership in so much as that leadership is godly and biblical. And by the way, let me just say, here's your pat on the back for today, okay? You do a wonderful job of this. You are a constant blessing to me and to Pastor Bill, and we thank you for that. Uh, Not every pastor is so fortunate. Many men of God serve churches who do not honor them, who do not follow their leadership, and who make their life very grievous and very difficult. So let me just first of all say thank you for being you. A church must not and cannot expect the blessing of God when they do not honor the shepherds that he has provided for them. Not only should churches honor their pastors, but verse 7 teaches that they should also emulate their pastors, saying that they should follow the faith of their pastors and consider the outcome of their conduct, the fruit of their life. In other words, a church should be able to observe the lives of their pastors and say, that's what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean pastors are perfect. It doesn't mean that pastors are without sin. Pastors are sinners saved by grace, just like everyone else. If you don't believe me, you can ask my wife or you can ask my kids. They will tell you very quickly that I am fallen. This is not saying pastors must be sinless, but it is to say that they should be genuine followers of Jesus, walking the walk not just talking the talk on Sunday. And that when they do sin, they quickly repent. That there is no habitual or unconfessed sin in their life that would bring shame and reproach upon Christ and his church. The Apostle Paul once told a group of Christians, follow me as I follow Christ. And that is what every pastor should be able to say to their church. Indeed, when you look at the biblical qualifications for pastors, as outlined in in 1 Timothy 3 in the book of Titus, for instance, um, when you look through the list of those qualifications, every single one of those, save one, deals not with competency, 
but with character. Deals with the character of the man of God. The only exception would be that he is able to teach the word. Every single one of those others deals with his personal character. So if you don't have pastors that you can emulate in your daily walk with God, frankly, you need new pastors. Finally, on this point, not only should churches honor and emulate their pastors, this is where it gets really awkward for me, okay? Verse 17 says that they should obey their pastors. A pastor described in this verse, verse 17, as one who rules over you and watches out for your soul. Now, I don't know about you, but there is something in my sin nature that doesn't particularly care for the word obey. I don't mind it in terms of obeying God. I, I really don't have a problem with that. But when you start telling me I'm supposed to obey another man, then there's something in me that just catches a little bit, right? And I do think that it's important for us to realize, though, that we're all called to obey not only God's authority, but also the earthly authority that he places over us, whether that's our parents or our employer or our government or in the context of the church, our pastors. Now here again, let me make a very important clarification. No earthly authority has the right to override God's authority. In the case of pastors, which is what verse 17 addresses, yes, we are to submit to their leadership in the church, but only to the extent that their leadership aligns with the word of God. Pastors do not have carte blanche to do whatever they want just because they're the pastor. Ultimately, as Christians, as the church, we are under the authority of Jesus Christ. As exercised through his word, Jesus is our chief shepherd, according to 1 Peter 5. Pastors, then, are his under-shepherds leading at his pleasure and at his direction. And so to sum all of this up, in a healthy church, here's what I think it looks like. Pastors are servant leaders leading humbly under the authority of Christ and his word with God's people joyfully obeying and submitting to their leadership as unto Christ. That's the ideal scenario. That's what the church should ideally be. Now, with that direction, the writer gives two further reasons why we should obey and submit to the leadership of our pastors first. Verse 17 says that pastors will one day give an account to God for how well they watched out for their people's souls. This is horribly terrifying. One day the under-shepherds will report to the chief shepherd, and we will answer for how well or not well we took care of his sheep. And I can tell you that this is a reality that weighs heavily upon the heart of every pastor who has truly been called by God. It is a solemn responsibility. Bearing this in mind, then, as church members, our desire should be to make our pastor's job in watching the sheep as joyful and easy as possible. So don't be the sheep that's stubborn. Don't be the sheep that keeps wandering off, and you're like, what happened to that sheep? Where did he go? Don't be the sheep that bites the shepherd. Be good sheep. And everyone said, bah, right? Okay. Second, verse 17 says, if we allow our pastors to serve with joy, 
and not grief, it's not only good for them, it's profitable for us. One Sunday morning, a mom went to wake her son for church. She said, Mom, I'm not going. And she said, just why not? He said, two reasons. Number one, they don't like me. And number two, I don't like them. His mother replied, I'll give you two good reasons why you should go to church. Number one, you're 54 years old. And number two, you're the pastor. So it's just like anything else. A pastor who feels honored and respected and appreciated and loved is going to be an effective pastor and preacher. And that benefits everyone. That benefits the entire church. A pastor who dreads going to church is not going to be a very good pastor, and he's not going to be a very good preacher of the Word. So again, I want to thank you, Selmore, for allowing me always to pastor with joy. It, it makes all the difference, and I thank God for you. All right, all of that falls under the category of direction number one. Let's move on to direction number two now. Let's see what verses 8 and 9 have to say to us. So the writer's still just going through his list here as he's closing this letter out. This is what he says next, very important. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Spiritual direction number two, stay rooted in Christ. Do not be led astray by false doctrine. When verse 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that has huge implications for what we believe as Christians. Because what that teaches us is that God, in this case God the Son, does not change with the times. He is not influenced by the culture. God is not swayed by the flavor of the month. Unlike us, God is above those things. He is eternally consistent. Theologians call this the immutability of God. That is to say that he is unchanging. This is very good news for us because it allows us to know with confidence that who God was yesterday, he is still the same God today. And he will still be the same God in the future. Furthermore, what God has declared as right in the past is still right, and it always will be. And what God has declared as wrong in the past is still wrong, and it always will be. Again, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Can you imagine if God changed his mind regarding right and wrong? What kind of position that would leave us in? If that were the case, holiness, morality, would always be a moving target. We could never say with certainty what is right and what is wrong because God could change his mind tomorrow and it would all be completely different. The unchangingness of God is so very important for us to grasp because the world would have us to believe that right and wrong are relative terms that are subject to change in context. That things once considered wrong and sinful are now acceptable and that this is, in fact, progress. The writer of Hebrews is warning us here that we must not be carried away by various and strange doctrines. We must not be misled by teachings that are contrary to Scripture, but rather we must stay faithful to the teachings of Jesus regardless of what the world may say. 
For the Hebrews to whom this letter is being written, we know that they were dealing with the false teachings of legalism. They were being told that even though they were followers of Jesus, they were still under the old covenant. They were still under the law. In fact, this has been a recurring theme all throughout this series, all throughout this book. But we know we're not under the law anymore. There is a new covenant. Jesus has made a new and better way. As you may recall, as part of the Old Testament law, there were certain dietary restrictions. And so you had people totally preoccupied with this. That's the word verse 9 uses. They're occupied with it. And you have people saying, look, you're allowed to eat this, but you're not allowed to eat that. And if you break these laws, then you're not acceptable in the sight of God. It was complete nonsense. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in verse 9, it's good that the heart is established by grace, not by foods. In other words, he's saying, you guys aren't, you guys are, excuse me, you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You're not saved by what foods you do or don't eat. That's a false teaching. It's not consistent with the teaching of Jesus, and so don't be carried away by that. That was their false teaching. We have our own false teachings today, don't we? One prominent example of this, we hear strange doctrines today concerning sexuality and gender. And we're told that we need to change with the times. We're told that we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. To which the writer of Hebrews would say, don't worry about being on the wrong side of history. Worry about being on the wrong side of God. As the book of Jude says, we must contend for the faith that has been been delivered once and for all to the saints. It does not change. It's been delivered once and for all. So dear church, realize Jesus never changes. Stay rooted in Christ. Do not be led astray by false doctrine. All right, let's keep reading. Let's look now at verses 10 through 14. The author goes on. He says, We have an altar, we have an altar, from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Spiritual direction number three is this. Here's how we'll summarize those verses. Embrace the role of outsider, identifying with Jesus. There comes a point in time as followers of Jesus that no matter how hard we try, we're just not going to please the world. We have to be okay with that. In the case of the Hebrews, you have Judaizers saying, hey, if you want to be accepted by God, if you want to be accepted by us, you can't abandon the old ways. You have to keep practicing the old covenant. For example, you have to keep observing the dietary laws like we just talked about. Or how about this one? You have to keep bringing animal sacrifices to the priests to pay for your sins. Here's what the author of Hebrews essentially says in verse 10. Not going to happen. As Christians, we have a different altar than them. In fact, he says in verse 10, they have no right to use our altar. You see, for the Judaizers, their altar was still in the temple where they sacrificed bulls and goats. But the Christians' altar 
is no longer in the temple. The Christian's altar is no longer in any earthly building. The Christian's altar is the cross of Jesus Christ, where the Lamb of God was slain for the sins of the world. The enemies of God have no place there because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then the author makes another analogy. He points out in verse 11 that when the Old Testament priests were done sacrificing the animals on the altar, what they would do with the carcasses, who in here has ever thought about what they did with the carcasses after they sacrificed them? I don't think that thought had ever crossed my mind. But what they would do with the carcasses, they would take them outside the camp, they would take them outside the city, and they would burn them. And then the author says in verse 12, guess who else was taken outside the city? Jesus. Jesus suffered outside the gate. When he was crucified on the cross, it was just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. They took him out. In other words, they treated him no better than the animal carcasses from the temple. And so the writer of Hebrews concludes this. You know what? Forget those false teachers who are still making sacrifices in the temple. We're never going to make them happy. Let's be outsiders. Verse 13 says, let's go to him outside the camp. Let's bear his reproach. Let's become outsiders with Jesus. And they'll likely view us as stinky animal carcasses too. That's okay. It's worth it to identify with Christ. And you know what? It's still worth it today. Even if the world calls us backward, even if the world calls us intolerant and anti-progress and whatever pejoratives they wish to use, it's worth it all to share in the reproach of Jesus. Verse 14 reminds us this world is not home. Verse 14 says this city, this world, will not continue. But rather, we as Christians, we seek the city to come. We seek the city of God. And until it does, let us embrace the role of outsider, just as our Lord was an outsider. Well, let's look at the last two verses. You guys still awake? All right. Verses 15 and 16, last two verses for today. It says, Therefore by him, by Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Spiritual direction number four is this. Offer the sacrifice of praise and of good works. Remember again the context. The Hebrews are dealing with people who are trying to persuade them that they should still be making animal sacrifices like they did in the Old Testament. To that suggestion, the writer of Hebrews basically says this. Don't worry about making animal sacrifices. The sacrifices that God desires are the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name, and the sacrifice of doing good to others. In other words, God is not interested in our empty religious rituals. He wants our hearts. He is interested in a life of continual and genuine worship and ministry. And so, dear Christian, I ask you today, are you offering God those sacrifices? 
Do you praise him with your lips? Do you speak of his name? Do you sing of his goodness? And do you do good to others? Do you share what you have in the name of Jesus? Would others know that you are a Christian by the way that you love your neighbor and by the way that you care for people? Verse 16 says, It is with these sacrifices that God is well pleased. It's no good in the eyes of God for you to come to church today, your Sunday best, and then leave from here and treat people like garbage. God's not interested. Praise Him with your lips. Do good. Share. Love your neighbor as yourself. As we prepare for a a time of response this morning, what has the Holy Spirit said to you today through this text? How would He have you to respond to what the Word of God has said? Whatever that is, whatever that looks like, I want to encourage you, be obedient to that. As always, here in just a moment, we're going to open the front here for a time of prayer during our closing song. And I want to invite you, if there's anything that you need to come and pray about today, you are welcome to do that. That's what this time is for. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I would implore you to take care of that right here and right now. Repent of your sin, believe upon Jesus, call upon his name and he will save you. And he will give you eternal life. If you're here today and you're ready to follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit's been working on you, you come right now. Say, Josh, I want to be a Christian. I'd be more than happy to lead you in a prayer of commitment. If you have any other commitment that you need to make to Christ today, whether that be following him in baptism or uniting with this church in membership, all of those things can be done during this time of response when we stand and sing. Let's stand right now, and we're going to have a word of prayer, and as I pray, our musicians are going to come, and then we'll sing. Father, thank you for your word, that it is perfect and true and trustworthy in every way. God, I pray now that as we come to this time of response, that you would help us not just to be hearers of your word, but help us to be doers. If there is anyone here today that you are calling in a specific way to make a decision for you or a commitment to you, I pray that you would give them the courage to come during this song and make that public before men. God, we will give you the praise and the glory. We give this time to you, and it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.